you turn your program over, you'll see that I'm Charles Davidson, the executive director of the Kleptocracy Initiative here at Hudson Institute. Uh, but first of all, welcome to Hudson and to our beautiful new facility. I say new because it hasn't yet been a year. Uh, we moved in here last, uh, last February. And uh, uh, for those of you who uh, are not familiar with Hudson, our primary mission is promoting renewed American leadership and international engagement. So that is uh, our slogan, if you will. And uh, the kleptocracy initiative, the word kleptocracy might vaguely have some sort of link to the notion of crony capitalism, and that is something we will, of course, explore. And uh, today we're very pleased to think, uh, feature Ming Sing Pei. When we started the Kleptocracy Initiative two and a half years ago, Ming Sing was either our first or second speaker, and he spoke about some of the ideas and research that he was doing for the book that has uh, now been published uh, very recently. And uh, uh, I should say Dr. Pei, my apologies. Uh, do he, Dr. Pei is the, he's the Tom and Margot Pritzker, 1972 Professor of Government and Director of the Keck Center for International and Strategic Studies at Claremont McKenna College. He has a BA from Shanghai International Studies University, MA and PhD from Harvard, his research is focused on governance in the People's Republic of China, U.S.-Asia relations, and democratic, democratization in developing nations. And I think that's actually been a, a, quite a uh, large focus of his, uh, his work. Uh, so his political thought goes well beyond China, I could say. He's written several books, the most recent being the book where he's going to be talking about today, and uh, the, the uh, China's crony capitalism, also the, the, the book he's presenting today, has already been chosen as one of the best books of 2016 by The Economist and the Financial Times. And uh, there have been many very favorable and excellent reviews already, and no doubt more to come out. And if you look at the corner of the room there, you will see that the book will be available for purchase at the end of uh, the event. Now, this uh, there is one person I need to thank before um, Dr. Pace starts his remarks, and that is Belinda Lee, who joined our team a few months ago and was a student of Dr. Pace at Claremont McKenna, and she has done a tremendous amount of work to put this uh, event together, and so all our gratitude to Belinda. Thank you. Doctor. Thank you very much, Charles. Uh, uh, I'm very honored to be here uh, to uh, share uh, some of my findings uh, of the, uh, in the book uh, with you. Uh, in the audience, uh, uh, there's an RA, uh, Bai Xue, who worked for me, and uh, she's now uh, working in DC. I want to thank her uh, as well. And uh, uh, it, uh, before I talk about the book, I want to say something about kleptocracy in China. Is there such a thing as kleptocracy in China? Uh, uh, the book, uh, the book really focuses on uh, you might call mid-level to sub-high-level officials. 
deputy provincial governor level and below. Uh, so based on uh, this body of evidence, uh, my understanding of kleptocracy in China is that it is you should look at kleptocracy as a food chain. There are different levels. Well, uh, we will be talking about uh, is really the lower reaches of the kleptocracy. At the really high level for researchers and Professor Wiedemann, uh, who is also a, a leading expert on corruption in China, uh, would tell us that it's very difficult to get reliable systematic data on very high level corruption in China, the level of state council, premier, vice premier, standing committee members, because the Chinese government simply does not publicize such cases, or even provincial governors and provincial party secretaries. Uh, so uh, uh, this said, I would say China, China's kleptocracy is quite different from kleptocracy uh, or conventional kleptocracies uh, that we hear about. Most kleptocracies are based on natural resource extraction. It is fairly easy to build large private fortune or illicit fortune very quickly if you can seize natural source, natural resource wells. China's kleptocracy is based on appreciation of assets. Uh, that goes along with the rising wealth of the country. So China's kleptocracy has one characteristic that most other kleptocracies do not have. That is, China's kleptocracy is actually fairly decentralized. You can have relatively low-level officials who can nevertheless acquire considerable fortune in the Chinese system. Uh, in other kleptocracies, uh, only a very thin slice of the top elites can acquire a huge amount of fortune. So if you can build a Gini coefficient of the ruling elites, I would say China's uh, Gini coefficient for the ruling elites probably is not very high. But if you want to compare China's Gini coefficient for the ruling elites with Russia's or Angola's uh, or some other uh, kleptocratic uh, states, then uh, their Gini coefficient will be very high. So this is just an uh, 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 an introduction to what uh, I would uh, 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 I'm going to say. Uh, what sparked my interest in, crony, in the idea of crony capitalism in China? Uh, about ten years ago, I was uh, researching my last book, which is called China's Trapped Transition, and I found a group of strange, unusual uh, corruption cases. These were cases that involved multiple indi individuals. In China, they were called a nest of corrupt officials or a string of corrupt officials, very figurative. And I did some digging, which I've uh, later, uh, at the time I didn't pay uh, a lot of attention to this, but later I uh, began to uh, ask myself, how did this phenomenon of collective corruption or collusive corruption uh, occur in China? Uh, I reviewed the literature of corruption in the 1980s, looked at online data source, and did some electronic word search. Uh, uh, um, a word search on electronic database, I couldn't find, could not find references to this kind of corruption. In the Chinese word is Wu An or Chuan until the early 1990s. So it, 
as uh, academics, if something of that nature did not occur, uh, but became quite prevalent after a certain point in time, then something big must have changed. So I tried to identify uh, the game change uh, or the game changer uh, in this particular case in uh, the story of China's corruption. And I then, uh, uh, I think I found plausible suspects. Uh, one, the prime, the prime suspect is change, changes in rules governing property. You cannot become very rich quickly unless you can put your, you can seize on the value assets. This is true all of the, all of the world. So I looked at how property rights changed, uh, in China. And, uh, what I found is that Starting in the late 1980s, but really, uh, 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 but this effort really picked up in the early 1990s, that the Chinese government began to privatize without privatization. So how uh, how do they do this? Uh, they uh, decentralized the control uh, rights of property, because property has two rights. One is control rights, the other is ownership rights. They decentralized the level of authority at which public property could be disposed, but they did not actually clarify who owns the property. So all of a sudden, a lot of uh, public property, especially land, really valuable land, mining resources, assets in state-owned enterprises, could be disposed by lower-level officials. So that created opportunities for private entrepreneurs to get their hands on such undervalued assets. So the question initially asked, why didn't Chinese officials try to steal the assets and enrich themselves? Uh, because I just couldn't find uh, a lot of cases where officials themselves did the stealing. Most of the stealing is done by private entrepreneurs. Uh, uh, while you, you call them stealing, you call them taking advantage of a valuable opportunity, whatever you call it. Uh, so. Uh, uh, so I, uh, how do I establish that uh, officials were not going into business for themselves? So I, again, uh, look at online, uh, look at uh, electronic database and typing officials jumping into the sea. They're not committing suicide. <laughs> they jumping into the sea in China means going into business for themselves. For 15-year period, uh, no more than a dozen officials of a certain rank actually became private businessmen. So this officials directly converting themselves into businessmen uh, is a rarity in China. There's a good reason, uh, if you think about it. Officials who have power to dispose property must have risen to a certain level. So they've invested their entire career in the government. In economic terms, it's called sunken costs are very high. So if they leave the government career, they waste everything. So they, they're risk averse in this case. Secondly, officials are very poorly paid in cash terms. If you want to take advantage of this opportunity, you, re, you need risk capital. They don't have risk capital. Even if you want to bribe people, you need some cash. So they cannot really, they don't have the risk capital as a down payment for that kind of uh, uh, asset seizure. And third, officials don't have the skill sets. Uh, they had the entrepreneurial skills to turn an undervalued piece of property 
into really valuable property unless they flip it very quickly. So, but on the, at the same time, another group of people, private entrepreneurs, they have everything. They know they don't have any sunken cost system. Their problem is that when you have a piece of property over which a lot of people have control, but no, nobody really owns it, they have to bribe all of them. Uh, otherwise, there's, uh, they encounter the problem of mutual veto. If you don't bribe A uh, and B and C at the same time, because a lot of chops in the Chinese system need to be put on a piece of paper for the piece of property to, to be transferred. So this is the origin of collective occlusive corruption. That is, you have, uh, and uh, uh, so uh, there are other uh, two other uh, uh, suspects. One is that in the 1990s, I focus in book. I really focus on property. I, uh, I don't have time to focus on the second uh, uh, likely suspect. That in the 19, starting in the 1990s, China's development model changed. In the 1980s, China had a balanced development model consumption versus investment. But starting in the early 1990s, development, uh, the driver of development shifted to investment. And a lot of that is state investment, infrastructure in particular. And infrastructure, in invest infrastructure, the same process of multiple, of obtaining multiple approval also exists. That if you are a contractor, if you want to get a piece of action, build a highway, build that uh, section of the railroad, you have to go to government and get, obtain chops. So that the, the same dynamic, the same incentive structure exists for bribing a series of, of officials. Uh, so uh, that's, the suit is that uh, uh, at the end of this talk, I will talk about one particular market for corruption. That is, uh, in China until uh, now, for about 20 years, the practice of paying a senior, uh, your, uh, paying a party secretary for an appointment uh, for public office is quite prevalent. It's prevalent. It was in, it was quite prevalent inside the Chinese military as well. Uh, how did that come about? Actually, it had to do with it was a change in how the what they call personnel management system. Uh, was uh, 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 there was a huge change in that system in the mid 1980s. Before that, uh, a mayor, a city mayor, could be appointed only by the central government. Uh, a county official had to be appointed by the provincial official. So there is one uh, layer of bureaucracy insulating the, the two levels of officials. In other words, buyers and sellers do not meet. Did not meet before that change. Uh, but uh, after 1984, it took a while for the system actually to be put in place. So the system was fully functioning in the 1990s, so buyers and sellers could meet. So if I want to appoint Evan, uh, if I would, uh, Evan is a county official, he wants to be the uh, uh, the next level up, would be the city official, in the old system he would have to go to Beijing and bribe somebody. So this is very hard. But under the new system, all he needed to do is to bribe the immediate official to get so to get appointed. So the market cre was created in that way. So this is uh, so we essentially we're talking about in uh, two cases major institutional changes 
in the system that created markets for corruption, for collusive uh, corruption. So this is so. What, how pre prevalent is collusive corruption in China today? Uh, in the 1980s, uh, unless the database I've checked uh, uh, is uh, incomplete. Uh, but I've also read a lot of corruption stories uh, for the 80s. You just don't find this kind of collusive corruption. But today, based on both national data and provincial data, it's about 40 to 45 percent of all corruption cases involved multiple individuals. So that's actually a major form uh, of corruption uh, in China uh, today. So how do they uh, uh, so? Uh, how do they actually collude? There are different. Uh, the central argument of my book is that corruption in China is a functioning market. Uh, players in this system have figured out how the system works, uh, and so there are rules. There's logic governing this market. So if you want to collude, uh, collusion actually is pretty hard. It's not because uh, involves multiple. In Individuals, how do you, if you're a private entrepreneur and you really like that piece of real estate, how can you get your hand on this piece of real estate? There are two ways. One is what I call vertical collusion. That is, you know that in this system, only one person who can help you coordinate the various uh, corrupt officials, and that person is always the party secretary, the party chief. Because the party chief controls the appointments of lower-level officials, so if you can bribe the party secretary, essentially, you he provides a packaged service for you. Uh, you don't have to worry about coordinating others. Uh, he's going to use his power to get the deal done for you. But there is a catch: you have to pay him a lot because the market. For bribe reflects this premium for coordination. Economists call this transaction costs. <laughs> so the party secretary typically gets a lot more bribes than the others because the private entrepreneurs know he's actually paying not just for the party secretary's own service; he's paying for him to do his other bidding as well. Uh, the other catch that the party secretary is picking. Is very picky. He's selective. You just cannot knock on his door and say, "Here's a million bucks. You do this." The party secretary only takes on what you might call blue chip clients. That is, these are well-established private companies that he knows that can afford big bribes. So, the, so he only services a small clientele. But what if? What about the upstarts? The upstarts have to do it the hard way. He cannot get to the party secretary, so he, he can only do the second. Uh, he can only use the second kind of collusion, what I call insider-outsider collusion. That is, he will have to knock on a lot of doors, uh, take them to banquets, take them to massage parlors, foot massage. It's very popular, so lots of foot massage parlors uh, and the karaoke's and so uh, and. It takes a while, lots of tra transaction costs. Uh, eventually, you can get this done, but uh, the market price also reflects. So these indiv individual officials get lower uh, bribes because there's high transaction cost. So uh, briber never overpays in this system. Uh, the third kind of collusion 
takes place in government-owned entities such as courts, regulatory agencies, and state-owned enterprises. There, it's really inside the theft. I call this horizontal collusion. That is, these are government officials more or less equally empowered. They work in an agency. Uh, they can steal government properties, state-owned and, and, uh, enterprise assets, or in the case they work in the courts, uh, in government courts or in regulatory agencies, uh, outsiders bribe them, but they share the bribe. So typically, if you look at all the collusion cases, you find these three different models, and uh, these different models overlap. So in one jurisdiction, you can f find three kinds of uh, corruption coexist uh, at the same time. Uh, of course, uh, when you look at uh, the actual behavior, you, I, you see direct collusion. That is, these people talk to each other, share bribes, and get caught together. What about cases where you do not find evidence? This is actually tricky. How do you establish that uh, uh, there's implicit collusion because a lot of time officials know each uh, know about each other's corrupt activities, but nevertheless do not uh, uh, expose the wrongdoing by other people. Uh, and by not exposing, they're actually colluding because they facilitate each other's criminal activities. Uh, do we have evidence for this? Uh, uh, I have some clues that can be construed as pretty good, good evidence. One is that when you look at Chinese court uh, documents, I use quite a bit of court cases uh, in my uh, research. Uh, you see this reference all the time. That is, the, uh, the, the English translation is that earning a major merit. The Chinese word is zhong da li gong. Then you look at the Chinese uh, criminal code. What does it refer to? It typically refers to providing information to the prosecution about other people's wrongdoing. And so these officials, so when the official provides the information, you can assume with a high degree of confidence that person knows about other officials' corrupt activities. That means he actually is involved in such corrupt activities, or he has direct knowledge, reliable knowledge. Uh, of such activities. And the second uh, piece of evidence is that uh, these days uh, uh, corruption in China takes the form of so-called collapse-style corruption. That is, a government uncovers a case in this state-owned enterprise or in the city, then within a very short period of time, a lot of people get arrested. Uh, some of them are connected with that particular network, most of them are not. So they were overlapping corruption networks in one jurisdiction. Uh, and uh, the third piece of evidence is that uh, in the book, I found that uh, at least two or three strange cases. That is, the party secretary and the mayor are political en uh, enemies of each other. They just could not hurry. Both were corrupt. But when they were corrupt, Neither would provide inf incriminating information to the investigators to bring the other down. But as soon as one is arrested, he will provide information. 
So I try to figure out why that is the case. Actually, uh, the, new, the logic of nuclear deterrence applies because they, it's called a mass strategy, mutually assured destruction. So for these officials, they know each other, know about each other's corrupt activities. It provides protection for them because when they are all safe, they're, they're okay. Uh, they have no incentives to rat on each other because the other will rat back. So that's, but the moment one is arrested, then he can launch his nuclear missile, <laughs> provide information, the figurative nuclear missile, and provide the information. So uh, if you go through, uh, uh, so, uh, th these are the sort of the theoretical uh, uh, behavioral patterns you can uh, observe. Really interesting. Now let me just share with you, because we, we're running out of time at five minutes about, so how the corruption uh, market works. It really confirms some of our assumptions about pricing, about risk, about commitment, about honoring commitment. So the first one is that, well, when we talk about, talk about collusion, so how big is the network? The, net, the average size of the network is re relatively small. It's about seven. Uh, there's a logic to this, because if you are in a network, it's about sharing the dirty proceeds, right? So if the network is too large, you dilute profits. If the network is too small, it's difficult to get things done. So seven appears to be the magic number in this case. So in SOEs, state enterprises, the number is seven. If you, the median size of a network involving officials and businessmen is about 11. Organized crime, and law enforcement agent uh, officials about six, uh, and uh, courts and regulatory agencies, the network is about six. So relatively small. The second one is that uh, uh, is protection service more uh, less valued than property. The market is also uh, quite efficient. If a private entrepreneur pays for a piece of undervalued property, he pays a lot more bribe. If he pays for uh, the service provided by a crooked judge or by a uh, uh, crooked police officer, it's a lot less. So how uh, these are the numbers. So uh, for officials who collude with businessmen, so we're talking about property transactions, the median corruption income is about $1.5 million. That's pretty large. The Chinese uh, uh, yuan is about 9.5. Uh, then uh, SOE officials who actually directly control government property, the median corruption income is about $1 million, 6.4 yuan. And uh, then you look at law enforcement of, uh, officials who collude with crime, organized crime, and uh, judges who uh, took bribes to provide in return of favorable judgments, or uh, regulatory agency officials who uh, uh, provide protection service. Uh, so for law enforcement officials who collude with organized crime, the median corruption income is roughly $100,000. So it's a lot less. Uh, judges, about. 10% uh, more, it was 700, 
uh, about eleven hundred dollars, uh, eleven thousand dollars, and regulatory agencies is about ninety thousand dollars. So the market actually values property more than service. This is one, and uh, the uh, then the, uh, the third question is that uh, uh, does market uh, the corruption market reward power? According to the amount of power, an official uh, does does the uh, market give differentiate between the levels of officials? In other words, if you have more power, do you get more bribe? Yes. If you're county level official, the medium because this time I use medium, uh, uh, it, it, there's huge va uh, variation in the amount of uh, uh, bribe. The median income for a county official is about two point four million Chinese yuan. And for a city level official, prefecture level is 5.0, so it's immediately double. And then for a provincial level official, uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, uh, yeah, uh, uh, yes, for a provincial level official is about uh, 8.2 million. So you see that it does go up. If the more power you have, the more in corrupt income you get, uh, that's because uh, you can dispose of bigger pieces of, of property. And uh, uh, the fourth question is that, does the Chinese anti-corruption system function well in detecting wrongdoing by officials? The answer is not very well, uh, because you can look at uh, two sets of data. One set of data is on the duration of crime. Chinese public uh, uh, publications are very helpful to people like me. That is, they would list starting which year this official began to collect bribes and ending with which year. So you can actually plot this time frame. So the median uh, length of corruption for county level officials was 6.5 years. Prefecture level 8.3, provincial level official is about 10.6. So it's pretty long. So this is one set of data. But the more damning data is this one. The second is that 80% of them were promoted while they were corrupt. Because getting promoted in the Chinese system requires a process of vetting, interviews, checking, and the system does not catch uh, wrongdoers. Uh, in uh, in this system, and uh, finally, how do they actually uh, price uh, uh, bribe? How do they actually price favors? Uh, so this one particular market pricing is actually pretty hard. That is, if you pay a bribe to get appointed to a certain position, how much bribe do you pay? It's because uh, despite Chinese uh, uh, despite claims in the Chinese uh, blog sphere that. Uh, officials would list offices, uh, uh, will put price tag on certain offices. I've not found any evidence of this. So it's really a market that's very opaque. But if you want to buy yourself a very nice government position, then you, there are two ways of uh, uh, getting that transaction completed. One is uh, you what I call using the installment plan. It's a price discovery. So how do you hit this sweet spot? Because you don't want to overpay, and underpayment would not actually work either. So uh, what you do is you 
uh, stretch out your payment over a period of time. Uh, typically, the first down payment is made on Chinese New Year, Moon Festival. <laughs> These are the occasions where you give the party secretary a box of cake and say there's something underneath you should take a look at it. Yeah. Uh, or when the, sec when the party secretary is hospitalized. Uh, so you go and see him. Really nice fruit from Hainan Island. Yeah. Uh, 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 yeah. So then uh, if the party secretary takes the down payment, good sign, then you go out. The second payment, you typically give hints about the positions you want to uh, get. And uh, if the party secretary gives you the appointment, then the third time you give you give a closing a payment. Now, so typically it takes two to three payments to complete. And <coughs> Uh, the beauty is that you do not waste money, it's low risk, but the problem is that you actually have to know the party secretary pretty well. And the result is you're always underpaid, severely underpaid. So you leverage your personal relationship, Guan Xi, with the party secretary for a sweetheart deal. But what if you don't know the party secretary and you really want that position? Then you have to engage uh, in a much more risky behavior, I call this blind bidding. You, it's a one payment, but you go to the party secretary, you put this sack of cash uh, um, uh, in his office and say, I want this, I want that position. It doesn't happen very often, but it, it does happen. So typically you make an offer the party secretary cannot refuse or does, want, does not want to refuse. So the market actually has figured out how to get the transaction down. So, but uh, are there differences uh, between markets because there are three levels, county level market, provincial level market, city level market. What I found is that it's very hard to find provincial level market because provincial appointments are made by the central government. We know such transactions take place, but you don't have evidence, so you cannot study. So we only look at county level market and prefecture level market, and you can see differences. County level market functions a lot more efficiently than the uh, than the prefecture level market because you can see there's not much price variation. Uh, if price varies a lot, then a lot of people are either overpaying or underpaying. Provincial, uh, prefecture level market, the private, the median price, the standard deviation by three x, so three times variation. In the county market, it's only one x. So it doesn't matter very a lot. And you can actually figure out why county is a small place. People know uh, finance level, uh, finance bureau uh, director can only collect so much bribe. So they know what they're getting. Provincial, uh, uh, prefecture level is a lot harder. And uh, then actually, uh, does uh, bidding a larger sum of money actually can get you deployment? It does. Because I have at least two cases where the highest bidder actually won. Uh, so that tells you something, that uh, there is a market mechanism at work. And uh, 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 fine, uh, then uh, there's another one is, that do they, uh, is there a refund? Is there, is there honor among thieves? So what if you bid insufficiently for, per, for a position and you don't get it? There's a refund. Uh, if you don't get what's surprising about corrupting China, probably it's uh, a subject for future scholarly uh, exploration, is that I have looked at a lot of corruption cases. 260 in this, probably I've looked at 
at least a thousand. I have so far not found a case where the official took the bribe and did not deliver. It's actually this commitment, and you have to explore why there's well, uh, this commitment in this case. Why there's no cheating uh, uh, in this uh, game? So this indeed honor among thieves. Uh, and finally, the why are uh, government offices sold so cheaply? Then, then another market mechanism works. You think about government appointments under control of a party secretary. A party secretary stays in his office for about average three years. So he essentially has a good that's going to expire very soon. So he has to uh, sell sell it at steep discount or nothing, right? And uh, second is that uh, the uh, the real reason for selling uh, offices very cheaply? The average, the median price for a county position is twenty thousand yuan, which is six thousand, which is three thousand dollars. That's nothing. It's like giveaway, and you can easily recoup uh, your uh, investment uh, within two months. Uh, incidentally, how are these purchases uh, financed? They're all financed by dirty money, by corruption money, by embezzled public funds. Uh, rarely do they actually use their own savings. Uh, in some cases, uh, businessmen will invest in these transactions because they identify uh, an official they think could help them because it's a market. So you have to uh, uh, tender the highest bid. So in, uh, they would use businessmen's financing. Uh, but the real uh, uh, objective of selling an office on the part of the party secretary is not to gain uh, cash income. Cash income is actually good, but uh, I looked at my cases. The portion of their income from selling offices is no more than 20% of their total income. They gain most of their income, 80%, from dealings with private businessmen. So then you say, why do they bother with this kind of activities at all? Actually, there's a secret catch because, as I said, you go back to the vertical corrupt collusion model. A party secretary needs a network of corrupt officials to work for them. So if he can get, uh, take token payment from an official and appoint him to this position, then that official, he owns that official. That official will do his bidding in the future. So how do you actually verify this empirically? So I looked at officials who were uh, uh, in the database for selling office. And then you look at their corrupt activities. 84% of them engage in collusion with private businessmen. So there you have a piece of evidence which shows that uh, there is a very likely explanation, very plausible explanation for selling government office. So I want to end up by saying that the corruption market in China is really entrenched. Uh, it's a very well developed market. And uh, uh, it is uh, what is going on in China, the Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaign, very high profile. He has suspended trading in this market. Mm -hmm. So there's not tra uh, tra transaction the number of transactions has gone down a lot. 
uh, trading has been suspended or reduced, but it has not destroyed the market because the market exists on the basis of state ownership of very valuable assets. As long as that structural condition is not changed, this market will exist and will roll back to life once uh, uh, trading is resumed. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Uh, well, next we're going to uh, hear from each of our extraordinary panelists uh, for um, about five minutes. But I'd first like to say just a very brief word about the book, because it's it's really very extraordinary uh, the way it lays out the whole architecture uh, of uh, all the different actors in uh, crony capitalism in China, as, as Ming Sing describes it. And... Um, you, you see all the act actors, how they interact uh, from top to bottom, and it's it's really an extraordinary tour de force of um, research and uh, insight. Uh, so thank you again, Ming Sing. And um, uh, our panelists then, Richard McGregor, Andrew Wedeman, and um, Evan Osnos, uh, they're, uh, I'm not going to introduce each of them because we all have a short bio in the program. And uh, so we'll start with Richard and then move through, and then we'll uh, continue the discussion. Um, thank you. Um, thanks for having me here today, and congratulations to Min Chen on the book. Um, you know, I think broadly, you know, I, uh, he's done far more research than me, particularly recently on this, and I can't uh, dispute the core of what he's talking about, you know, collusive corruption. It's a joint enterprise based around loose property rights. You know, the system has its own rules, uh, its own operational codes, and of course, as he laid out, market pricing. Uh, in some respects, it's very valuable to look at, you know, the, the you know, China is a government, but it's also a party. So in many respects, it's like, you know, Tammany Hall on steroids, uh, inter intertwined with the sort of sophisticated ancient bureaucracy. Uh, they're both there. Um, uh, I also think he makes a very good point. Well, I don't know whether he mentioned it just then, but this is tied, without getting too sort of pointy-headed about it, but tied to a big fiscal uh, recentralization in the 90s when China, the central government, thought the provinces were getting out of control. And so they made sure most of the fiscal revenue came back to them. And the way the local governments made up the money, of course, was selling land or trading land. And there's a number of ways in which they do that. Um, the, um, I also think, you know, we, you wonder, uh, you look at the two kinds of uh, systems in China. Now, if in China anybody plays up politically, um, um, you know, if they start holding meetings with the Falun Gong, uh, if they start agitating on Tibet or Xinjiang or something like that, it doesn't mean matter if you're on the smallest village, the authorities can get you like that. Um, and depending on, you know, how far you push it, you know, you can be in big trouble. Uh, why hasn't the same, why isn't the same attention paid to the sort of corruption uh, at a local level? Uh, I think there are a number of reasons for that. Um, uh, one is, of course, this is what greases the system. Um, it's uh, something that actually Andrew might have looked at, but, you know, China, in many respects, perhaps until recently, was not like Indonesia under Suharto. Uh, things got done. 
Um, uh, they got done at a higher price, obviously, but they got done. The other thing is, and something that I certainly noticed when I was living in China, that all the corrupt officials in big companies and small companies would make sure that their um, instances of corruption or their uh, corporate entities were as complicated as possible um, so that people from the outside really couldn't understand them. Uh, if you think of the states, for example, it's very difficult for even sophisticated entities like the DOJ or the New York Prosecutor's Office to really understand or get inside a crooked financial enterprise or trading enterprise. Uh, in China, the, um, you know, the investigatory authority, it's not the police, important to remember that. This is a party body which is doing the investigation. You know, the Communist Party catches and kills its own. It only goes into the courts after they've done the work. Uh, this is a, uh, an under-resourced body with under-trained people. And the only way that they can really get to the bottom of things is really to lock people up, uh, interrogate them, uh, isolate them, threaten them, maybe even on some occasions torture them, threaten their families, and so they confess. And they, as Minchin says, they implicate a whole bunch of other people who they've been involved in corruption with. Um, so that's another reason why, you know, you can't just have a national sweep um, and, and clean it all up. Uh, you know, Minchin says uh, Xi Jinping has suspended trading. I, I guess that's true, but I'm sure there's a little bit over-the-counter market <laughs> still going on, or whatever you want to call it. Um, um, I just want to make a, a, a couple of other points, um, it's, which, you know, I, you know, I think reading this book thought made me think that, you know, good areas for further research. You know, we talk about all the sorts of... Uh, first of all, there's the issue of top-level corruption. Uh, he hasn't gone into this, as he said, because he doesn't have the same data to work with. Um, um, I wonder, really, whether that's... We're going to get more data because more people have been arrested in the last two, three years under the anti-corruption drive. Uh, if you look at one of the biggest anti-corruption cases in China recently under Xi Jinping, it was the, uh, the Chinese general who was effectively the equivalent of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and one of the charges against him that he was buying and selling commissions actually selling commissions, he didn't need to buy any because he's already at the top. Um, yeah, so uh, he was selling commissions, in other words, selling senior posts in the military, which doesn't say a lot for, you know, the China's military preparedness. But you see all the sorts of things that Minxin identified at the local, you know, the much prefectural, the local level, you see manifest at the national or provincial level, but of course without the same level of information. Um, uh, the, the other issue, of course, is, you know, um, we've got grotesque corruption in China, but alongside a competent, uh, functioning government. Um, you know, you can say many things about Chinese corruption, but it's also true that, uh, you know, maybe it's going to all unravel one day. I certainly don't think it's going to, you know, collapse tomorrow like many people have been predicting for years. Uh, China has a functioning government. It has many competent, sophisticated uh, policymakers. Uh, um, I also think it's quite a creative country. I know that's a controversial thing to say in many ways, but also policymakers are, are quite creative as, uh, as well. It's possible they've moved themselves into this uh, cul-de-sac in which they're going to basically, growth will slow down and will grind or halt, particularly when the demographics kicks in. But it's a very interesting question, you know. Um, you have huge corruption. Um, there's no doubt about that, and the Chinese 
official press tells us that every day. In fact, Xi Jinping tells us that every day. But alongside of that, uh, they do have a real system that on some levels uh, works. Um, and I think that's an area that needs, um, uh, 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 you know, I'd like to certainly understand that better, how the two coexist or whether they're just coexisting for a short amount of time while China catches up, is in the catch-up phase of economic development and whether, in fact, it is going to become like Indonesia under Suharto and the corruption will, in fact, undermine uh, the whole system and government. Thank you. Well, thank you, uh... Thank you, Richard. Well, uh, I, also I, what I forgot to say, yeah. I was going to thank, I had not heard of it somewhat disgracefully, I had not heard, heard of the kleptocracy initiative before this, and I want to say what a fantastic name that is. And <laughs> it could be read in a number of ways. Thank you, uh, thank you, Richard. Well, when we started out, it, it was called the anti-kleptocracy something or other, and then it was decided... I'm make it positive. We all succumb yeah. eventually, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I, it was decided to save on, on printing costs or whatever. <laughs> well, thank you, Richard. I start, when you talk about corruption in a functioning government, it makes me think of uh, one of Meng Singh's remarks about how reliable the corruption is. So it delivers. It <laughs> delivers. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, on on one level, that doesn't uh, that doesn't sound so so bad necessarily. Well, let's move on to uh, Andy then. Well, uh, Richard uh, actually gave me a very good opening for for what I want to say. First, before I say anything, this is a terrific book. It is a first-class description of how corruption works in China. And if you want to know something about corruption in China, or what we could call corruption with Chinese characteristics, read the book. It's really, it's, it's empirically based. It's not a few scattered stories. It's very systematic. So I highly recommend the book. But I want to pick up on something Richard said, and then also that Charles said, and then follow up by, uh, by focusing on... Uh, uh, Pei Xin's book. Um, China's interesting in when you get to corruption because between 1980 and 2010, the Chinese economy grew at the highest rate in the, in the world with the, the exception of one case, and that was Equatorial Guinea. And they were out one day shooting at some food, up come the ground, come a bubble and crude. Um, and they are corrupt as hell. The Riggs Bank, which was one of the biggest and oldest banks in the U.S. here in the district, went bankrupt as a result of corruption in Equatorial Guinea. China, on the other hand, had real economic growth. It has a functioning government. When they go and invest in a road, they get the damn road. When they build high-speed rail, they get high-speed rail. So you have this question of how did that happen? And back in 2012, I published a book trying to explain this. And I was perhaps uh, being an optimist. I said there are really two things. This is a short-term phenomena. It's got to do with windfall growths that result from where you take assets that had no real value and you put them into a market. Suddenly, they have much higher value. Windfall profits. Corruption was basically splitting the profits between new entrepreneurs and officials. The second thing I said is anti-corruption had actually worked in the extent that, unlike your classic kleptocracy, the regime fought back. It wasn't entirely successful, but they kept it from spinning out of control. This is where Professor Pei's book comes into my comments. If you look at the title, it's Crony Capitalism and the D Dynamics of Regime Decay. And I want to pick up this on this latter point, because when I wrote that book, 
which was published incidentally the same month that this, the scandal that led to the anti-corruption campaign occurred. Um, I did not pay Moshe Lai's wife to kill that poor English. <laughs> uh, my publisher did that. Um, the current campaign, when I look at it, raises important questions. And when I look at the work that uh, Professor Pei did in his book, they raise important questions. Had corruption, as I argued uh, four years ago, really kind of plateaued in the late 1990s, early 2000s, and was not getting worse. Well, what's come out during Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaign is strong enough evidence to, to question that. By my count, as of mid-November, 123 people at the vice ministerial level and above, civilian officials, plus 82 or I think it's 82, it might be 87, my mind's a little blank, but 80-plus military officers holding ranks above senior colonel and mostly major general and above have been arrested, convicted, sentenced, or at least implicated. So what that tells you is you know, high-level corruption is a serious problem. Now, the question that that raises is, is... Professor Pei right that in effect China morphed into a crony capitalist society, a crony capitalist system during the 90s and 2000s, and as it, is it moving in the direction of a kleptocracy? In other words, a regime that's essentially um, its main function is to facilitate theft by individual members of its uh, of, it, of, of the state. When I look at what we've learned from the anti-corruption campaign. I think there are two things that we have to, to consider that perhaps don't come as, across as, 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 much, as strongly as I'd like in, in the book. First of all, corruption, moved, corruption basically got promoted during the, inter, the, the previous decade. Many of these people who are being arrested now, if you go back and do, do as Professor Pei did, look at the lag between crime and, and, and capture, you find that uh, the Boshi lies and the Zhou uh, Yang Kang's They'd been involved in corruption for 10 years. And when they got involved, they were lower-level officials. And over time, as Professor Pei very astutely observes, they got promoted despite corruption. So corruption moved from being a kind of mid-level problem. It got promoted up into the ranks. It wasn't necessarily that it spread, but it moved upwards. Um, second of all, in the past generation, China, Chinese society has undergone a profound change in that when the reform period began, there were no rich people in China. There were managers, there were state officials, uh, but there were no rich people. Today, there are billionaires, there are millionaires, there are people who have more money than, no, not than our, our incoming president, but there are some very wealthy people in China. That class emerged as a result of the reform. That class is not independent of officialdom. They are, in many cases, sons, daughters, wives, brothers, sisters, etc. And this is one of the things that uh, the, the kleptocracy initiative has really, I think, helped highlight for those of us who focus on it. And the question then becomes, as corruption moved up, and as it in effect moved out 
of officialdom and became merged by blood in marriage into this new economic elite. Are we looking at a slide from crony capitalism to kleptocracy to regime crisis and perhaps failure and a un an, un uh, an uncharted future? Or are we looking at the emergence of what I would call a plutocracy? And unlike a kleptocracy, which is ruled by thieves, a plutocracy is ruled by the rich, for the rich, and in the interest of perpetuating the interests of the rich. A kleptocrat, when we think about it, the kind of classic image is the guy who gets into office, steals as much as he can, ships it off. Well, it used to be the French Riviera. Um, nowadays, you need to find a, a slightly more secure home. And then when the peasants start storming the doors with the pitchforks, um, you throw your henchmen to them and escape out the back door to live a life of wine, women, and song on the whatever the French Riviera is these days. A plutocracy is different. A plutocracy is actually about regime survival. It's about long-term income streams. And when I look at Xi Jinping's reaction to the evidence that I see emerging in 2010, 2011, that you know, corruption is not this kind of mid-level, controllable problem, but it's infected the very core of the party state. Xi Jinping's fighting back. Xi Jinping is determined to perpetuate the current regime. And the question is, will he be successful? And it's a very dicey proposition. He's taken out, as I said earlier, 200 senior people. He's obviously not taken out some other people. And yet he's wrangling with this question of how can I get corruption under control? How can I, serve, I can ensure the medium term or perhaps even the long term survival of this regime without having to do the kind of damage that I would have to do to effectively root out corruption? In other words, go after the people I don't want to go after because they may be related to me, they may be my political allies. So I think the, the book is extremely useful in setting up this question of where has corruption been and where is it driving us? Is it driving China toward a, a kleptocracy in regime crisis or is it moving in a direction that is much less serious in terms of being simply a plutocracy and one that could become a resilient, plutocratic authoritarianism. Now I'll stop there. Thank you very much, Andy. We'll come back to this point you've brought up after we hear from Evan and look at a few other issues, too. Fascinating. Thanks. Um, first of all, thanks for, for having me here. It's, uh, it's, it's actually a real honor to be able to talk about Min Shin Pei's new book. This is a triumph. I think you've heard from the other panelists, and you will see, if you haven't already, in uh, your magazines and newspapers and journals of choice, that this is really being regarded as a milestone book, and that's exactly right. And I, I want to make two comments, one on the approach uh, and then one on the findings. One comment on the approach is that as I think Charles and Andrew mentioned, one of the essential contributions here is that the book provides both a theoretical framework and also an empirical basis. And these two pieces have really been lacking from the work that those of us sort of on the ground in China, as Richard was for a number of years, as I was, uh, who were picking up on these anecdotal 
um, pieces of evidence without a way of understanding how they fit together. And so each in some ways, I, I, I like to imagine that each piece of the ecosystem was doing its, its job here um, by picking up on individual stories, but then it really took uh, a scholar of, of uh, Dr. Pei's um, uh, seriousness and commitment to be able to say, well, how do these pieces all fit together? And he's done that, and we're all the beneficiaries of that. I will point out it was an unfashionable argument to be making when he started. And I, wanted, I happen to be privy to a, a, an anecdotal piece of evidence, which is the two of us were giving, uh, we're talking about China to a group, uh, and it was tended to be a, a group that was focused on finance, and they were interested, they were a lot of people do business in China, and this was in 2011, and we started making the case, both of us were picking up on similar uh, things in the air, we were both very interested in the emergence of this new um, collusive, corrupt dynamic, and we made the case, and we said so, and the group in the room, all of whom had, in one form or another, invested in the idea that China was um, a place in which uh, you got what you paid for, and it was an open system, and it was this functioning, everything seemed to be going fine, the bridges were getting built, the trains were being, uh, were being built, and what was the problem? They were not open to this argument, and it took, it was a real act of uh, a kind of intellectual bravery on Min Xin's part. Uh, to stick with it in the face of what were a lot of, there's a lot of reasons why people didn't want to believe that this was in fact true. Now events have uh, unfolded in public in ways that confirm his thesis, um, but to any uh, particularly young scholars out there who are wondering whether their hypothesis that they observed up close is correct, uh, despite uh, you know smart people telling them it's not, follow your gut. If you think it's right, you're seeing it on the ground, you're seeing it in the data, you may in fact be right, um, and don't, don't abandon it. Now uh, an observation about the findings, which are so essential uh, to all of our understanding of China. I will, if you'll indulge me in, the, in one anecdote, I'll, I'll tell you a story that sort of gives a form to some of the dynamics we've been talking about today. This is the story of Liu Zhejun, who was, um, as some of you may remember, the railway minister in China from 2003 to 2011. He's interesting because he begins to get at the question that Andrew and Richard mentioned, which is how is it that China is both very corrupt and also highly functional? How do these two pieces go hand in hand? And the reason why it was interesting was that Liu Zhejun, after all, oversaw this enormous expansion in the high-speed rail construction project. And if you came from abroad and you looked at what was happening, you saw these trains being built everywhere. And there was, it was, an, there was clearly construction was happening. Things were being built. Um, and the question then became, well, if they were being built, well, you know, does, does corruption really matter that much? Um, Liu Zhejun, uh, I will tell you very briefly, you know, started by at the lowest levels of the railway ministry. He was walking the rails with a with a meter. He was in charge of you know checking literally tie by tie, making sure that the railway tracks were were safe. And he worked his way up through a combination of personal aspiration and doggedness and skillful strategic corruption to the highest levels of the system. Along the way, he acquired the the nickname Great Leap Leo because he was so committed to moving fast and to undertaking big projects. And in some ways, his dedication to that and his own, the fact that he came from nothing and that he really did want to get his way into the highest levels of, call it collusive opportunity, uh, that was essential to understanding why the system was actually being constructed. Now, along the way, he was not doing this pro bono. Uh, he was not, in fact, doing it for his official salary of 20-some-odd thousand dollars a year. 
he was in fact profiting from it enormously estimates range but he was eventually charged formally after he was removed from power and brought brought into court he was charged formally with taking about 10.7 million dollars in bribes which everybody assumes let's you can you know say a power of a power let's say maybe four times as much was what he actually took this number was a negotiated figure which was for public consumption so as not to unduly besmirch the good name of his of his ministry so he was charged with having taken 10.7 million I will tell you he's best known actually in China though for another fact which was that he was said to have 17 mistresses and the great leap yeah right exactly I once interviewed a member of his staff after he had already gone up the river and I said logistically how did that how did that the railway minister right right he was a man good good point he was a man of transportation high speed yeah high speed is right but the interesting thing about Leo Jujun in addition to the fact that it was both a combination of opportunity and ambition that allowed him to get into this position at all the other thing that I find interesting about him is what he said during his trial and there was a really revealing insight so he go in public in court he played his part he wept he apologized he said that in fact the Chinese dream would be the solution and this would get China back on the right track but what he what was really interesting was what he said to his daughter and this was a comment that was relayed through his lawyer in the state press and he told his daughter quote no matter what you do stay out of politics unquote and the reason why that's interesting is it gets to the heart of Minton's argument which is is corruption a bug or a feature in the Chinese system right now and the conclusion that he reaches through all of this empirical work is that it is a feature it's not a bug and that's what Liu Zhejiang was saying what he said was if you go into politics you will end up in the situation that I am confronted with now and that leads us to sort of finally I'll just mention two things that I think are worth questions for further consideration questions for further study one is if it is in fact a feature and not a bug and I think that's the right way to think of it as as mentioned as demonstrated then we have to ask ourselves well then does that mean that that China is in the midst of a cyclical process of managing corruption the kind of cyclical process that it has conducted over the course of the last few thousand years where it you know get the corruption gets too bad and then there is either some abrupt or some other kind of change and it and it goes back to a more manageable level and then it begins to sort of it's this ebb and flow or are we because of the specific nature of the corrupt of the political system now in a more linear kind of dynamic where the corruption is in fact moving in a direction towards decay and I Andrew sort of mentioned that before and then the last piece I'll mention I don't have an answer to it but just a question worth considering and it's the one you know part of the of the of the political stew that we haven't talked about in China and that is the people what role does public attention play now that this subject which we're talking about which was furtively discussed five years ago and is now openly discussed to one degree or another in sanctioned terms in China if you pick up the newspaper today in China as we all know you'll see stories about corruption about the 200 and some odd officials who have been taken out so the question then becomes what happens now that the public is aware Xi Jinping's play his bet is that by essentially bringing attention by fixating on corruption that people will pay more attention to the efforts to beat it back than they will to the fact that it occurred at all but that's that's a bet I mean that is a he's gambling that that's the case 
And I don't know the answer yet. None of us really do, I think, whether uh, he will succeed in that. And I'll stop there. Great. Thank, thank you, Evan. F fantastic. Uh, well, a lot of uh, interesting issues have been put on the table here. Uh, so we're going to discuss them and especially hear from Dr. Pei in terms of some of these issues that were uh, brought up by our, our panelists um, for about uh, 20 minutes. And then we will have uh, about 15 minutes of Q&A at the end of the program, so in about, uh, about 20 minutes. Um, so if we, if we pick up uh, from, from uh, what our panelists have, have uh, talked about, uh, Richard talked about corruption plus a functioning government, and this might last for a while if I understood correctly. Um, Andy's put, put this big question on the table, which I think we certainly want to address and uh, uh, in uh, as much depth as possible, which is where is the system going? Uh, is it kleptoc headed towards a kleptocracy, plutocracy? Uh, and here, maybe I don't know that we need to get hung up on the terms so much as the more uh, the, the general sense of what what that might mean. Um, and uh, and then uh, maybe we could pick up on what Evan's talking about: this public awareness. I mean, how is that? going to affect things, how is public opinion maybe going to torque things one way or another in, in China? Does that sound okay? Yeah. So, you want me to... Do you want to... Answer one of them. Yeah. Well, or all three. Please. All three. Well, do you want to pick uh, on that with I'll, you? Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, I think uh, in terms of uh, Richard's question, uh, even though the details are grotesque, uh, the amount of uh, money stolen is huge. China is not a country where corruption is totally out of control. If you look at international data, China is your average corrupt country. It's about that is uh, uh, it is not clean, but it is not Indonesia on the Suharto or Mobutu as uh, way way from there. That. I think where, uh, if you think about corruption in China, you, ha you have to think about what China could have become without that kind of corruption. Because China is, in terms of the strength of its bureaucracy, the talent of its people, can do much, much better. That is, food will be, will be much safer, pollution will be much less, uh, inequality will be much lower. If and the quality of its infrastructure buildings will be much, much higher. If China could move just one notch up in terms of the integrity of its institutions, this is how you should look at China. It's, so it, it would be a wrong way of saying, you know, well, China is going to the dogs because of that kind of corruption. Actually, you should think of the opportunities lost, the costs that would have been avoided. Because, uh, the strength of the Chinese state, uh, the capabilities of the people can deliver much better outcomes. And those of us who have worked in China, who know uh, the Chinese system, I think probably will agree with this assessment. Uh, so it is functioning, but it's not functioning at the level that it should and it can. So it's, it's the second issue about the plutocracy, I've thought about this. is. Uh, I used to think that there was, for a while, a brief, we don't know whether 10 years, 15 years, there was a corruption equilibrium. That is, uh, the pride, the amount of uh, bribes, 
collected, the kind of activities that were perpetrated and tolerated actually did not change that much because there was some kind of restraint on the part of the elites. But that restraint broke down, I think, in the last part of the, the last few years of the last decade. The end of Hu Jintao era, you could see huge change, huge increase in the amount of bribes. Things which I would not even uh, think possible, that you could gain a party secretary of a province uh, when he was called, has something like 250 million yuan, that's 30 million dollars uh, in declared uh, bribe. And you had somebody who could sell uh, an oil well and pocket half a billion Chinese yuan. These kind of acts were not existent, were just unimaginable. So there was clearly the, the equilibrium broke down. So the question is, and this answers to Andy's question, is a stable plutocracy possible? I think it's not possible. Because in a corrupt regime, that is, there's always this mindset, is that it's my turn. And if I do not take what I think is my due, then why, why have I worked so hard? Like Minister Liu, mm -hmm. who came from very humble background. Uh, because uh, I compare, uh, one way of thinking about corruption in China, and why this is not a sustainable, not a equilibrium, a stable equilibrium, is that think of corruption, this system, as a buffet, right? Buffet is that you, those of us who, who eat a nice buffet, you know, you start with vegetables, <laughs> then you move on to chicken, and then you end up with lobster. <laughs> but think about people who know the game, and then, because you initially have to eat a lot of vegetables to, to, to perform well initially. But what about that? We all worry is that by the time I line up, uh, it's my turn to get to the lobster station, there would be no lobster there. And once you have that, uh, develop their mindset, then there will be no lobsters <laughs> because everybody <laughs> will take more, pick an extra small. And that's the system because there's no enforcement mechanism in this system to make people impose self-restraint because how much money you can steal in this system is totally dependent on a high degree of self-restraint. So for the ruling elites toward the last half of the Hu Jintao era, the last self-restraint. Now, the objective is to reimpose mm -hmm. some kind of restraint. This time it's external. Uh, it's not self-restraint. So now it goes back to uh, public awareness. I think Xi Jinping is, on, is riding a tiger, literally, because this is, this is a corruption tiger. If he gets off, uh, does not uh, really destroy the corruption system, how is he going to do uh, answer the Chinese people because he's built up expectations among the people. But if he really destroyed the system, then who will actually in the system work for him? Nobody will line up at the buffet because they think there's going to be no lobster for them at the end of the line. Why line up? They would leave. They will exit the game. So I don't know he actually has thought through uh, uh, as, long as, uh, as far as corruption is concerned, how he's going to fix the system and uh, make it work. Say so a couple of things um, on the idea of you know the corruption as a sort of a kind of disciplined corruption which greases the wheels. 
Our favourite uh, man, Minister Leol, for example, who took maybe anything between 10 and $40 million in bribes. At that time, I think, and it's gone up since, I think yeah. the the cost of the amount, the amount of money, public money spent on the railway system was about three thirty billion. Mm -hmm. Is that right? That was the figure sticking yeah. in my head. So that may be a small tax to pay to get it all done. Um, the second thing about the buffet, uh, for a long time, there's been a sort of phenomenon in China amongst ministers, people, sorry, people just below the ministerial levels, called the fifty-nine-year-old syndrome. In other words, if you don't make minister, you've got to retire at sixty. And so if you're $59, sorry, 59 years old and you haven't had your turn at the lobster, at the buffet, <laughs> uh, there's a real tendency to cash in at that time, which, of course, makes you very vulnerable to uh, being caught. Um, and on the issue more broadly uh, about Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaign, now the sorts of you know, blood-curdling statements he makes about the survival of the party and the country being on the line because of corruption, uh, Jiang Zemin said the same thing, uh, Hu Jintao said the same thing. So why is Xi Jinping the only person to really be serious about this? And I think one reason is because in, you know, there's a big debate, is he taking down his political rivals, is he taking down people on more objective evidence of uh, corruption? A um, bit of both, I'm sure. But, you know, we must remember when he came to power in 2012, this was a year of an absolute earthquake in Chinese politics. Uh, Bo Xilai was taken down, a, a, a rival. Uh, the, the seeds of uh, Zhe Yongkang, the security chief, uh, the seeds of his downfall were sown at the same time. Uh, and essentially, you know, if you believe the official Chinese press these days, uh, Xi Jinping thought there was an internal coup being mounted against him by Bo Xilai and by Zhou Yongkang. And essentially he thought, okay, well, they're, they're doing this to me. Um, look what I can do to them and all the sorts of people who are part of their network. And in particularly, the, the core of uh, Zhou Yongkang's uh, power was the wonderfully named in China, the Petroleum Mafia. Um, and it's like you've seen in, in the U.S., the heads of Exxon uh, Mobile uh, that are being promoted to Secretary of State. In other words, the, the heads of about uh, five, the five biggest oil companies in the U.S. and their families being taken down and locked up and their wealth confiscated. Um, and in many respects, I think, was that because he saw not just a threat to the party from corruption, but a, th a threat to his job as well. And I think there's a, a personal element in this anti-corruption campaign too. Evan, do you want to comment? Yeah, I would. Uh, just one one brief observation. I, I take Richard's point certainly about the idea. If you take Leo Jardin's, call it his sort of personal tax of between ten and forty million dollars, and you look at the overall spending, it seems like a, a small fee. I, the, I, I encountered this, I, question, I, but the thing, yeah, but the thing that, but the thing that is that I always try to that I remember in the course of sort of thinking about the uh, the dynamic overall is that he's not the only one <laughs> and that he is in fact one and may even not be the most efficient beneficiary that you know so there if you take all across the system there are all these others who are taking their tax I begin to think that it is not a costless transaction I've, I've, I mean this is where you know it gets interesting to ask well when we look at China's functionality and success now, um, are we looking at it in 
in the fullness of, are we taking a full measure of its strengths and vulnerabilities? And this is where it always gets hard to answer the question now because we don't know how the story ends. So I, I always think, you know, it may be that the, that the, it turns out that the costs of corruption, which is really sort of what we're all of us trying to ask, you know, how much are, how much is this really costing China? That we don't really know until we discover whether the system is, is brittle and perforated and flawed, or whether it is in fact durable. If it's durable, that does change the way that we think about the costs along the way. If it turns out that the that the seeds that were being laid of public resentment um, eventually do end up becoming a decisive factor in changing China's political future, then it will t it will have been that in some ways, you know, Wang Qishan was right that we need to be thinking about what the public thinks about corruption and about its disillusionment with the state. I'll, p I'll pick up on that, and, um, you know, I think you're right, that the problem wasn't that corruption got out of hand, it's that they lost their self, their sense of self-restraint. You know, corruption is kind of endemic in the Chinese system. It existed under Mao, it existed under the early days of Deng. But to my mind, there are two things that really lead to this campaign. One is there was a case involving a the guy who ran the base realignment program for the PLA, a general named uh, Gu Jinshan. He got caught in about 2010. And Hu Jintao allegedly went to Su Saiho and uh, Bo Gosiang, both of whom later fell from grace. And they, they, he said, do something about this guy. They basically told him, uh, not so much. Mm -hmm. Second thing, which is really Hu Jintao running up against a system that says, even though we caught this guy flagrantly, we're not willing to sacrifice one person. We're going to just let it go. The other thing that, to my mind, really triggered this was a car crash involving the son of Ling Jiwa, who was Hu Jintao's right-hand man. He was killed driving a $300,000, I think it was Lamborghini, mm -hmm. Maserati. The Lamb Chinese would say about Lamborghini. Yeah. Lamborghini. Yeah. These are important. And it was just this thing. This thing <laughs> happened at four o'clock in the morning, and in typical fashion in China, it was viral. The regime subsequently clamped down on it. But by the time they clamped down it, everyone had seen it. The problem was this: it wasn't that he was driving. It wasn't that his father had somehow gotten him a car. It was driving a three hundred thousand dollar car. You know, he shows some self restraint. Right. Drive a VW, right? Or a, or, or a Maserati, for example. Or, well, or you know, a humble Porsche, or something, you know, that the the, uh, the the old 100 names could drive. And I think you know what what Xi Jinping comes into office recognizing is these people have forgotten. It's okay to be corrupt, mm -hmm. but be humble. That's Ride your totally bicycle to the office and then take your limo. <laughs> yeah. Keep it low. And the problem was. That the public knew it, yeah, and that there was a huge backlash. And what Xi Jinping then needed to do was he needs to go out and bag a lot of tigers to say, on the one hand, to the public, look, Zhou Yan Kang, I'll take him down. I'm not worried. Ling Jibwa, right-hand man, don't worry about him. I'll take him out. But at the same time, it's a signal to everybody else, including possibly his own relatives. Keep it on the down low. Mm -hmm. Don't let it get on WeChat. Don't get caught wearing, and I'm not wearing a, uh, a my Chinese. It is a handsome wristwatch. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a Seiko. Uh, yeah. My Chinese Rolex 
died years ago. It was, 20, it was $25. Um, you know, it really is the signal that, you know, we, we could tolerate corruption. We understand. It's the grease that, that makes the wheels work. And there's a cost. But we need to make sure it's not a issue of public uh, antagonism and anger. Yeah. Well, I've, I've always fancied the Maserati Quattroporte. Mm. Personally, my <laughs> wife finally. I don't even know what that is, but uh, well, that's four doors. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking for a new bicycle. <laughs> well, no. So my my wife finally gave me one, and it's about an inch and a half long, and it sits on my desk. <laughs> finally, having can enjoy that. And with that, why don't let's turn to uh, you all, and uh, we've got a little bit of uh, time for questions. So the. The gentleman in the in the blue jacket. We'll start with, and then we'll move around the room. Oh, and if you could please introduce your, yourself, just name and uh, affiliation would be great. Elias Zaslavsky, Legatum Institute. I just wanted to take uh, some of the deliberations further about uh, sustainability and uh, so f f and connected questions. So uh, we're talking about crony capitalism, although officially China is communist uh, still. So. I wonder what's happening with communist ideology and how it's just becoming a shallow facade and uh, people are getting disillusioned. So um, uh, then uh, logically we take this further. So w w what can it go to? Um, it can go to nationalistic uh, sort of uh, Wild West capitalism. Uh, and if that is so, then uh, maybe corruption inevitably leads to expansion. How how you get how do you continue to get a lobster either by exploiting your own people or by exploiting uh, people your neighbors and sort of uh, we already know China is uh, uh, exporting its uh, corrupt sort of style of business to Africa to Central Asia and so forth uh, how um, peacefully can that be sustained or not uh, and um, then uh, another logical question is. Can the party sustain its prevalence in the political system when the ideology is so shallow? Because, for, uh, to my mind, only China and Vietnam are really out of all the former communist states. They remain communist officially. All the rest, especially Russia, uh, has been taken over by secret services because now ideology doesn't really matter. So maybe China will be the party will be removed and. Uh, uh, will have either strongmen or secret services. So I, I'd like your comment on this, please. Thank you. Shall we take one? Yeah, we'll take one. Well, we'll, we'll take one person at a time. Yeah. Uh, Andy, do you want to answer? Uh, Richard. Well, no, I'll answer a little bit of it. I mean, I, the best way to think of China is not a communist country, but it has a communist government, and there's the private sector which is built around the core of the Leninist core. You know, controlling the military personnel. And you know all um, uh, public offices, public and private offices. Um, but the idea that they can't coexist, I think that that bird has flown for thirty years or so now. So, and I think you know the party will continue to succeed as long as the country continues to succeed. Um, and as I think none of us um, up well, I certainly I'm not dogmatic about what's going to happen in the future. I don't really know. You can make up any sort of set of scenarios. Minshin's got extremely persuasive. Uh, Set in his earlier book about how they've they have gone into a cul-de-sac, um, but that that debate about ideology in in China I think is gone. Except if we do look at the current administration, 
they're talking a lot more about Marxist-Leninism again and ideological control in the universities, but I think that's about political control, loyalty to the party, not about the substance of the ideology uh, itself. Well, in my research, is that as far as ideology is concerned, is that I'm not seeing a single official reading Marxist, Leninist, Marxist. Just they actually don't do any reading at all, like our incoming president. Yeah. So, uh, and uh, I initially want, wanted to call the book "Crony Communism." Actually, it's not "Crony Capitalism," because but then I say we will give communism a bad name <laughs> if we call them "Crony." Uh, where it is going, I think, is a combination of hard authoritarianism and nationalism, without an ideological component in its conventional sense. Uh, it's really about power coercion, appealing to a sense of Chinese greatness. Uh, but otherwise, forget about equality, justice. Uh, yeah, Michael Davis, uh, University of Hong Kong, and now a fellow at NED. Uh, a couple things, two questions. One is, and they're unrelated, one is the law enforcement side. Uh, is there any rules that you've teased up in this marketplace about if everybody's corrupt, of course, everybody could get arrested or prosecuted. And, of course, they can pay bribes to, a, to these law enforcement officials to avoid that. That's one option. But I'm wondering if that's a full account or is there a sort of rules of the road that how you conduct your corruption to avoid prosecution uh, and what, you, what you've discovered in that. And the second question is unrelated and it relates to India. Uh, I go to India a lot, I'm, I'm sure you occasionally do as well probably, and there's so much admiration for China. Of course, India is, you know, you could do a book on comparing India and China on corruption. Uh, which one, what do you think about the two? Is, is, is the one in China more virile or, or worse, perhaps, for China in the long term? Uh, I know Indian colleagues still admire China's, you know, shiny cities and everything, its achievements. So how do we compare these two, one under uh, sort of, you know, democracy and a free market system and the other under communism and free market? Uh the easy one first, India, China. I think Indians pro uh, India's uh, corruption and China's corruption are qualitatively different. India, the corruption is like you have a lot of toll booths each time you pay a little bit. And it drags out a lot of transaction costs. Uh, China, you, uh, it's really what I call one-man shop, one-stop shop. Uh, you pay one person who does it for you. But the problem is that if that person, uh, that can person charge very high prices. Uh, so that's, there you pick, you pick your poison. And another problem I think in India you have the problem of mutual veto. There's a lot of players, uh, who, to whom you can pay bribes, but they do not deliver. There's a huge, actually, commitment problem. In China actually, thieves actually deliver. Uh, then the, uh, the first problem is that what do mafia organized prime members actually get? They get protection, typically. It's, a, it's not that different from uh, a corrupt country where the police is in cahoots with the mafia. So they typically get monopoly. They get their uh, brothels protected, casinos protected. But Chinese mafia, some the more enterprising mafia groups have got into business. So they're real estate 
is protected, uh, their minds are protected, and also they can use violence to uh, seize property at a lower uh, cost. So it's, again, the maf uh, mafias, uh, my interpretation of so the Chinese variety is really uh, a group of people that uh, control uh, violence, uh, and violence is their currency of business. Uh, thank you. Uh, my name is Arnold Zeitlin. I teach in uh, Guangzhou. Uh, Bribery, extortion, sale of positions and services, uh, kickbacks. These have a, go back centuries in China. Is what is occurring now in China merely an extension of that practice? In other words, can we put this into context in some way? Well, uh, the, yeah. well, uh, my initial response. Will you want me to answer the hardest question? Uh, no, the questions. The questions yeah, uh, actually, it's well. not true. It is. You look at uh, certainly during the Mao period, the kind of things you we we now study did not exist. That we're not saying that the Mao period was not corrupt. It was corrupt in very different ways. And then you look at the amount. Is that corruption in the nineteen eighties? The kind of things we study did not exist. No, it's not not money. Actually, you're challenging to find buying and selling office because market didn't exist. I actually did Google, mai guan, mai guan, in, uh, you look at the 80s, no references come up. So actually, I think that uh, I hear this kind of question all the time, it's, it's the same, it exists. it's actually not true. You have to look at data, look at uh, facts. Yeah, I, I think on, on that point, I think the issue of the partial liberalization of land, which in his book points out very well, I think is a big factor in that. And once you have an administrative bureaucratic system with discretion, uh, that makes it, and plus the urban-rural land divide. So I think that's a, another factor. You know, also one other note, you know, you, you, you framed the lens broadly to say, what if we go back hundreds of years, maybe not even just to the 80s and the 50s, but let's say if we go back a long way. I mean, you do find moments of extravagant corruption. There was a famous eunuch at the end of the Qing Dynasty who was said to have amassed more in his own personal treasury than in the national treasury. And that contributed to the downfall of the dynasty. So in some ways, I find the context in this case is relevant. It's you know it's a longer discussion about whether it's disconnected or connected, but it shouldn't necessarily be reassuring, uh, in the sense that even though there may be longstanding trends towards gross corruption, it doesn't end. It's not as if it gets digested comfortably into the system. It tends to produce a abrupt and radical change. Dynasty falls. Indeed, yeah. That's uh, you know, but uh, but I agree with you that the long-term sort of mindset is relevant. I think it's also important to keep in mind corruption in the Maoist era may have been denominated in seemingly tiny things, a couple of pounds of pork, a bottle of baijiu, a carton of cigarettes. But the value of those things back in a day of chronic scarcity can be equal in some sense to a suitcase full of renminbi these days. So it's, yes, corruption Corruption exists in virtually every political system. It's a matter of degree. And in the case of the Chinese system, it fluctuates. And at some points, it's just routine. At some points, it gets more severe. Is it more severe today than in the 1980s? Yes. 
Is it more severe than in the, the Maoist period? Yes. Is it more severe in the later, than in the later part of the Qing? Well, that's a good question. We don't have much data there. Um, but, you know, it is, it is a constant. It's a matter of variation in quality and quantity. Well, uh, since we're on the mob period, there's one anecdote I always use in illustrating the difference between the elites today and the elites during the Mao era. We all know about the Ganon Four, right? Number two, uh, number three on Ganon Four is Wang Hongwen, who is vice chairman of the Chinese Communist Party, one for a while Mao's children's successor. Uh, not a very bright person, but. Uh, in one of the memoirs about Wang Hoan's corruption during the Cultural Revolution, there were two instances. Wang Hoan liked Mao Tai, but he was paid very little. And Mao Tai was very expensive, very rare. So in those days, at the state banquet, they would recycle Mao Tai. Is that half a bottle, not drunk, they would recollect. And Wang Hoan would pay two RMB, two yuan, for a bottle of recycled Maltai. That was considered corruption. <laughs> Today, he would be a paragon of virtue, right? <laughs> now, there's another instance. He also kept a German shepherd. And German shepherd has a voracious appetite for raw meat. And couldn't afford more raw meat. This is vice chairman. So how did he solve that problem? He reclassified his German shepherd and his guard dog. Mm. And as a result, the guard dog would be entitled mm -hmm. to officially provided meat. <laughs> so that's corruption. <laughs> Different a variation on the lobster, on the lobster theory lobster. of politics. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, uh, my name is Mark Dallas. I'm a professor of political science and a visiting scholar at GW uh, Business School. Um, I, I have, I'm a little bit more optimistic, perhaps, given the, the way you framed it, because it seems like there's two different markets here. One is for uh, positions, and that could be uh, always replenished, right, because people retire and then it gets replenished, right? The market for land is limited, however, right? There's a certain amount of land, and so as growth goes down, the value of that market is actually going to shrink, and also you can only privatize so much. And I'm wondering... If, a, if you agree with that, and also, is this? can you consider this as privatization by another means? In other words, privatization of land by other means. Um, my second question, very quick, is uh, did, uh, are, are foreign firms and entrepreneurs engaged in these practices, or is this purely a domestic thing? Okay, you answered that one already with a nod of your head. Well, uh, <laughs> uh, actually, really interesting thing about corruption in China, it really occurs in monopolistic sectors, heavily regulated sectors. None of the cases I've looked at involve competitive sectors, manufacturing, twice, no. Uh, or real estate developers, mine operators, uh, privatization of state-owned uh, uh, prices. I, I think uh, you can be optimistic about one thing, but uh, that is uh, state-owned assets are finite. So one transaction, they become private. But the problem is that those cronies who, con who had this initial advantage will continuously be advantaged. In, in answer to the foreign question, by the way, you know, there's a great story about GlaxoSmithKline that is, you know, perhaps the, the best recent, um, and it's, you know, there deserves to be a dissertation done on the, on the way. But they got drawn into all of these practices and mores and they ended up, you know, commissioning investigations and it was a, it's a tough business. And then JP Morgan, of course, just settled for $294 million. Um, for and the, one thing about the GlaxoSmithKline case, 
that was an extremely competitive market for uh, for medical processes. And what they were paying was basically doctors would say, well, why should I prescribe your drugs when this guy is offering me something else? So, yeah, there is the monopolistic aspect, but then that was a particular case of a corrupted market. Yeah. On the issue of land, I think that's a good point, actually, because, I mean, there's the market for land, there's two things. You have... Very broadly speaking, and I may be out of touch, you've got rural land, urban land. Rural land is not tradable, urban land is tradable. If you re reclassify rural land as urban land, you instantly increase its value. But I think many Chinese cities are running out of land they can do that with. I think cities like Shenzhen, for example, increased their borders substantially so they would have more land uh, that they could sell. Um, I mean, a city like Shenzhen is probably okay because it's a very successful business center, but many other places um, will run out of land and, of course, will run up against another important national policy, which is to preserve arable land. So I think that's, that is a cycle that will have diminishing returns. I'm going to take one last question from the gentleman near the window. Uh, Hi, John Sullivan um, with George Mason. You've also written, you're, you're obviously spending a lot of time at night writing. Um, <laughs> you've also written an article for the Journal of Democracy, which makes me think about the democratization question. As countries reach a certain level of income, political science theory stipulates that the demand for reform will reach the point where they democratize. After listening to this panel, I've concluded that China won't get there ever and is going to break the theory. What do you think? Is, it, is China going to get there? Well, uh, uh, based on all the social science findings about uh, the structural factors under which, uh, or uh, for favorable for transition from authoritarian regimes to democracy, China actually has a model. Now is, uh, but that's not all. It's the problem that ho holds China back today. Well, there are two aspects of the problem. One is the determination of the ruling elites to defend the system. It varies hugely from regime to regime. And totalitarian or post-communist regimes, indigenous revolutionary regimes tend to have a much higher, much stronger degree of determination. And we see this in Xi Jinping. So that actually uh, is the other uh, one problem with China. The other is actually external environment. Transitions from autocracy to democracy occur when the external environment is highly favorable for democracy. You cannot make that statement today. So in fact, I was going to write another book on the coming transition in China. Uh, then November 9th happened in this country. And I said, no, no way. Mm. I will be a laughing stock mm. if I tell people that given what democracy uh, what has happened to democracy in the West, that China will copy a Western democratic system? I had to be crazy. <laughs> I wonder whether there's a negative threshold that if a country, if a portion of a country begins to make less than a certain amount, do they run the risk of losing democracy? Yeah, well, there's research on this, but the research that is that uh, you, uh, this uh, supposed to be that once a country has reached a level of uh, say 6,000 per capita purchasing power, then democracy will always stay there. I think recent events have shown that that's not the case. Venezuela. Actually, I think what the literature says is you reach a zone in which the probability of a transition mm -hmm. goes up. But ironically, if you make it out of the zone in terms of income, 
Rich countries don't have revolutions. Yeah. You can be rich and authoritarian. Yeah, but so so is the uh, so is the argument. Yeah, but that group, I just have uh, that it's group. Pretty tiny. All oil producing. That's why. So you, if you don't have a chance to read my Journal of Democracy October issue, transitioning China more likely than you think. That is a, actually when you look at countries that are dictatorships that are richer than China, or except for Cuba, which I think is um, uh, is a problem of ca uh, calculation. And Thailand. Thailand is only about a thousand dollars more. All of them are oil-producing countries. So that's why you 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 have to be uh, your your wealth has to be built on oil wells, and you can stay democratic. So the next time China will have to have a lot of shale gas, uh, yeah. shale oil, and water. Yeah. And water. Yeah. I'm afraid we we have to stop there on this most intriguing note. Um, so thank you all for coming. I hope you found this interesting. Uh, and we thank Dr. Pei. Thank you.